God is faithful and that he's a God worth uh, serving and loving because he first uh, came to serve and love us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, um, we're going uh, to get straight into this morning's passage from Ephesians. And what I'm going to do first, this is my idea, so I'll fix it. I'm just going to sort this out down here because there's a blow and everything in one minute. How's that? Does that fix that? It was the fan on the microphone. Very good. That's what's encouraging. Just knowing a fan's blowing makes us feel a lot cooler. Well, we're going to hear in a minute that uh, our battle in this world is not against flesh and blood or fans, but against the powers and principalities. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them uh, at Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we're going to have a look at the passage, picking up from verse 10, Ephesians 6, verse 10 through to 17. It's up on the screen if you have it there. If you don't have a Bible. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate plate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning as your people, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather and we thank you for bringing each one here this morning. We're mindful of those who aren't here, who are unable to be here, whether it be health reasons or family circumstances or work or whether it be um, uncertainty about our current times and our current climate and, uh, and wanting to, uh, to continue to isolate. Father, we thank you that you are with us no matter where we are and our hearts and our minds go to those who can't be here. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the unity we have in Jesus Christ. Help us now as we um, hear from your word uh, a, very, uh, um, a very important part of the Christian life that is often overlooked. Help us to understand better how we have been fitted out, geared up for, the battle that we are in, whether we like it or not, and that you've given us everything we need to do that. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty and victorious name. Amen. Well, Ephesians is one of the weightiest books in Scripture. They all are, really, in many ways. But Ephesians in particular. Uh, And it's a, a book that tries to, and does very well, to apply the gospel to all areas of our lives. And although there are many themes and topics that Paul writes about here, particularly in the second half of the letter, we can actually summarise the entire book with two major themes. The summary is this, that God is redeeming all things, that he's bringing them back to unity under Christ uh, since the fall, since the chaos of sin and rebellion that came into God's world. Now in Christ, God is redeeming all, all things and he's bringing them back Uh, to unity under Christ. And the second theme is this, that the church, those of us who are Christians, followers of Jesus, the church is God's new humanity. Um, We are his model venture, if you like, his example to the world and to the powers and principalities in the way that he is going to restore all things and bring unity back into Christ, under Christ. So there are lots of things that can be said about the message of Ephesians, and we've been doing that over the last several months, but they really boil down to this. God's eternal purpose is, being, is, is coming about, is being, um, bringing all things uh, under Christ in unity. That's happening just as he planned, and that we, the church, are central to what God is doing in this world. But as we are nearly at the end of this letter, in fact, this is the second last week uh, that we'll be looking at Ephesians It seems as though Paul is really concerned, in fact, he's quite deeply concerned by something, and he's anticipating a danger that all of us as Christians are going to face and do face. Uh, There's a famous guy, you may be familiar with him, his name's Sun Tzu, and he wrote an influential ancient Chinese book on military tactics and strategy, and you may know the heading more than perhaps his name, but The Art of War is what he wrote. And this is what he said. All warfare is based on deception. Therefore, when capable, feign incapacity. When active, feign inactivity. When near, make it appear that you are far away. When you are far away, make it appear that you are near. Offer the enemy a bait to lure them. Feign disorder and strike them. Pretend inferiority and encourage their arrogance. Do you get the strategy here about what defines victory uh, in war, the art of war? All warfare, he says, is based essentially on deception. It's about outsmarting the enemy. Well, what does this have to do with us? What does this uh, sort of ancient Chinese war strategist uh, have to do with us? Well, according to what Paul is getting at here in the passage that we just read, everything Have a look again as we recap. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Suddenly, we're we're being called to war. We're being called to take up arms. And what Paul's doing here is he's identifying a reality about the Christian life. A reality that we do have an enemy who engages in deceit and who has all kinds of schemes and they're crafty things and they catch us out often and most of the time, a lot of the time. Uh, it's interesting, um, the, the word schemes there actually has the idea itself within it that the schemes are deceitful in themselves. 
Essentially, Paul is saying that, that God's eternal plan in reconciling all things under Christ, in, in beginning with us as the church, as the example, the model of God's new humanity, will not go unopposed. Okay, it's, it's going to raise the heckles of our enemy. And, and at the end of Ephesians, he says that there are two things that we need to do in response to this reality. And the first one, I think, is really important. Well, they're both important. But the first one speaks to us specifically in our context in our part of the world. First of all, we have to recognise uh, that we are in a battle. We have to recognise the nature of the battle that we're in. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you find yourself as a Christian um, facing some of the most frustrating or debilitating burdens that threaten the very strength of your faith and, and your trust in Jesus. Um, it can be a range of different things. I'm not talking about trivial things like not being able to find a car park or misangled fans that... Um, blow air in the wrong direction and so on. I'm talking about these, these things that just you just think, what in the world is going on here? It might be opposition in the workplace, where things seem to constantly go against you and, and restrict or suppress you and, and, uh, and cause you to question your faith or ask, what's going on here? Uh, it might be at home with a family relationship that, that floors you or that niggles away and, and causes you a lot of grief. Maybe the opposition um, towards our faith and in us uh, as we grow as disciples is more than what it is that we just see, is more than what we're just experiencing. There's a lot more going on behind it. Well, there are many scenarios that surely might come to your mind, but as disciples of Jesus, we can take much insight from what Paul addresses here, particularly in verse 12, because the reality is that we are in a fight, he says. And the battle that rages isn't one uh, of what necessarily what we see face to face and, and in, in the material. This is a, a battle that is so much, so much bigger. And we're in this, whether we like it or not. Look at what he acknowledges in verse 12. He says, for our struggles, not against flesh and blood. It's not against those things that we think of, those situations or the people involved in them. It's not against that, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Well, what's Paul talking about here? Well, he's given us a hint, hasn't he, in verse 11, when he said that we're to take a stand, we're to take a stand against the devil's schemes. And what's clear here is that uh, we are in a spiritual battle against Satan, and that he is a real being, and he has evil forces uh, that he works with and controls and uses. We have an enemy who has all kinds of cunning strategies who will attack us in surprising ways and we will not be able to withstand those attacks left to our own strength or simply by our own grit and determination or humanistic achievements. We're in a battle and we must be prepared. You know, if you uh, go to the average church, the reality is we, we don't hear much about this. And there are reasons for that, because our focus is actually not to be about evil. Uh, our focus is to be about the victory that we know we are in, uh, which is way more powerful, as we'll get to, than any evil. So we can understand at one level why we tend not to hear a lot about, about this, but um, we do tend to talk a lot about nice things as churches, don't we? We talk about families, you know, we're a church as a family, uh, or we're a hospital, we're a place where people can come and, and they can he experience healing from the great healer. 
Or, or we talk about being a community of people to be part of and to enjoy. And if there are battles within the churches, they're usually sort of little nitty-gritty infighting things, aren't they? Getting caught up in our own little power plays and things. They're certainly not on a cosmic level. That's not where our focus tends to be, or that we're, we don't, we're not aware of. It can be easy, can't it, to forget that we actually are a part of something so much bigger, that we're a part of something that is going on that does affect us. There really is a battle, and we are participants in that battle. We are caught up in it the moment we came to faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is victorious, the one who fights the battle for us. Well, one of Satan's schemes is to actually lull us into complacency. Uh, often I hear people, uh, they might come, uh, not often, uh, but uh, when I do hear people come and they say, oh, you know, you know, some people, they find the devil in everything, you know, he's everywhere and he's, that's, that seems to be their whole focus in their Christian life. They're just constantly talking about what the devil's up to and what, all the evil that's going on and, and they, they sort of read into things and I, and I think, wow, you... You're raising it, you're aware of the concern, but you're actually playing straight into the strategy. <laughs> um, one of Satan's schemes is to do that, and he doesn't mind us talking about him, even in the negative. <laughs> he doesn't mind us talking about him, even if we're saying he's defeated. We're still talking about him. We're still looking for him under every, uh, every bush. We're still um, getting caught up in it. But one of the strategies he uses uh, is complacency and apathy, uh, to actually forget that there is a battle at all. And to get so confident in our achievements, achievements as human beings or, or our understanding in sociology or our understanding in how people work and so on that we forget we're a part of something way bigger and way more sinister. You know, it's scary enough to think about this battle, but it does get worse. Uh, when Paul says that we're in a struggle, he's actually using, using a, a wrestling term here when he uses the word struggle. When we think of battles, what, what do you think of when I think of warfare or battles? Well, if you're like me, what typically comes to mind is um, wars, you know, uh, and, and um, guided missiles and powerful guns and explosions and uh, all sorts of heroic warrior type things. And um, we think of war with technology and, and destruction and really obvious, you know, when, you know when you're in a war zone, right? Well, that's not the kind of war that Paul is actually talking about here. The word that he uses there uh, to struggle uh, reflects the sort of war um, more like hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's like wrestling. And who does Paul say that we are struggling with? Well, not flesh and blood. Uh, it's, not the church, it's not that the church um, doesn't encounter humans ish, human opposition, um, but Paul says that the struggle goes much deeper than that. He says that our struggle is against these authorities, powers of darkness in the world and against the spiritual forces of evil. Our enemies are not human, he says. They're spiritual forces. They're demonic. And, and we don't know a great deal of detail about what Paul describes here. And I know there are many people that um, look into this and have come up with a whole lot of detail. Paul certainly didn't do that. Uh, and the scriptures um, rarely speak actually in detail, specific details, about this other than giving us, like in this passage, a very clear uh, and overt warning to be aware of it and to do something about it, uh, which God resources us with, which we'll see in a moment. But uh, even though we don't know a great deal of the detail, um, John Stott gives us a summary of three things from this passage. And he notices that these authorities, these powers, these spiritual forces have in particular three distinctives. The first one is this. 
Uh, one is that they're powerful. Okay, don't ever under, underestimate them. They are powerful. They do have power. They aren't at all afraid to use it, and they're not afraid to use it against us, particularly against God's people. That's the purpose. Uh, it's where the power is channeled at those who are the saints, those who are in uh, securely and, and firmly in Christ. But they have power. Now think about when Satan himself turned up and tempted Jesus in John chapter 12. What, 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 it, what was it that, that Satan claimed of his own authority? He said that he would give all the kingdoms of this world to Jesus, right? You ever notice Jesus didn't actually argue that point with him. Jesus called him actually the prince of this world. He acknowledged that, yeah, he does have power of some sort in this world. It's interesting that his power is obviously limited and contained and not even remotely on par with the power of God in Christ because Satan turns up to find out who Jesus is, right? But we know that Satan, uh, and we know that he was obviously uh, defeated too, wasn't he, at the cross and in the resurrection. But he's certainly unwilling to concede defeat. And he's not being totally destroyed. So they're powerful. The second thing is they are wicked. Paul says that these powers of of darkness, these forces of evil, um, they're plain wicked. Jesus said uh, of Satan himself, he he calls him a murderer and a liar. And he said he was always been a murderer and a liar right from the beginning. He says that in John chapter 8, verse 44. The apostle Peter describes Satan as being like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. And, you know, Peter says that when he's filled with the Spirit uh, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. But we know Peter's experienced that, don't we, when we look at Peter as a disciple in those harrowing last few hours as Jesus was being led away to be crucified. Peter knows that he was very much uh, used by, um, caught up in, the powers of darkness that were opposing Jesus and seeking to destroy him. Well, John Stock continues, he says this, if we have hope to overcome these powers, we shall need to bear in mind that they have no moral principles, no code of honour, no higher feelings, they recognise no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilise the weapons of their warfare, they are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs. They're powerful, they're wicked. Thirdly, they're just plain devious. They rarely attack openly. This is why I get concerned when people come and they say, oh, I've just seen Satan's doing this and Satan's doing that. That's a little too obvious for Satan. They try to catch us when we're least expecting it. And they use people that are sometimes the closest to us. And we get used as people close to others. Have a look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. He says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. You know, often people, and, and in the past, and if you grew up in the sort of church tradition I did, which I think many of us may have here, um, in, in the sort of 70s in particular, and sort of on into the 80s, there was a, a, a big thing, and probably before that, but I don't know. Um, there was, there was a, big, a big focus, it seemed to be, on, on, on spiritual warfare and, and, and the powers of Satan. A lot of books were written, um, a lot of stories and accounts and testimonies and things like this. And what struck me even as a, as a young kid sort of reading these or coming across conferences and courses and things was I thought, this is all just too obvious. You know, it's, I, I, I can't help but think, if Satan appears as an angel of light, well, most people are going to get very easily caught up in that, aren't they? Um, yeah. 
Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's like when someone discovers that they've been in a, in a really evil situation or they've been uh, perhaps caught up in a cult of some sort. And, and you'll hear them, they'll say, oh, I, I just had no idea that... I didn't think for a second it was a cult. Or I didn't think for a second that person was... was um, of course you didn't. That's, that's how evil works. It's, it's alluring. It, it draws us in. It catches us out. It's devious. Satan and the powers of evil love to lull us into complacency or apathy or discouragement or sometimes even as an angel of light, as something warm and new and positive. I wonder today, you know, for us in our context as disciples of Jesus, because it's very different to the Ephesian context in many ways, but I wonder for us living in the comforts of our Western society, I really don't think Satan has to at all be all that overt. I think he's got us already, hasn't he? In many ways. We've often forgotten the reality of the battle. We've often overlooked it. We've even ignored it that we're actually in a spiritual battle against these powers and these principalities and that our enemy isn't just flesh and blood. Well, another great writer by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he wrote this in the 70s. <laughs> he says, I'm certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have all become so psychological in our attitude and our thinking. We're ignorant of this great objective fact the being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser and his fiery darts, these things are real. And of course, because we are not aware of this, we attribute all temptation to ourselves. So the devil in his wiliness will have succeeded admirably while we're focusing on ourselves. We become depressed, discouraged, we feel we're failures and we do not know what to do. So the first thing to say is to acknowledge that we are in a battle and the battle is real. The second thing that Paul reminds us of in these few verses is uh, that we have resources that God has given us. There are resources that God has given us. Up to slide 9. Yeah, Ephesians uh, 10 to 11 and then uh, 6, 10 to 11 and then verse 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord, he says, and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 14, therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. I don't know if you're scared by the idea that we are in a spiritual battle, that we're in hand-to-hand -hand combat with spiritual powers. We're wrestling, we're struggling. These powers, are, they're powerful, they're wicked, they're deceitful, they're devious. Well, that's actually a good start. It's not a bad start to be aware of and to have a sense, a small sense at least, of fear, of acknowledgement that this is something we're in. And you know what? Left to ourselves, if it was just us against all this in this battle, we would be completely overpowered and we would be outwitted. And so being fearful and scared would be a natural response because fighting this battle in our own strength, well, we quite literally don't stand a chance. But God's word assures us of this, that we haven't been left alone. We haven't been left alone to our own resources. What we see here from Paul is an image that's for the whole of the Christian life and that the whole of the Christian life is uh, about spiritual warfare. We're a part of something way bigger than what we can see. And the way to respond is to use the resources that God has given to us. The Lord's strength, the Lord's power, the Lord's armour. 
God supplies all that we need in this battle. And it's not going to come from within us. It's not going to come from uh, others who are in, caught up in it. It needs to come from God. And it's more than what we need. It's more than enough. Uh, we could spend weeks unpacking this list here. There are six of them. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we heard from earlier, um, he took 26 chapters at 736 pages to write about these six pieces of armour uh, that God uh, has given us. We're going to cover it in less than 30 minutes. Um, maybe one day we should return and sort of slow it down and have a look at this passage in more depth, or specifically these resources that, that God has given us. But I want to especially highlight one thing that's, that's worth remembering. Whose armour is it that we've been given? Whose armour is it that we've been given so that we can stand firm? Well, verse 13 makes it clear it's the armour of God. It's God's armour that we've been given. You see, we often read this as armour that God simply gives us. We've got to somehow locate it or find it or figure out how to, to get a hold of it. But it actually goes much further than that. And we get this image, uh, this confirmation from an image in the Old Testament that the armour we're given actually belongs to God in the first place. It's a fascinating picture. Uh, it's, it's in uh, Isaiah chapter 59... And it's a chapter worth reading all of at some point if you get a chance to, Isaiah 59. It's a horrible time in the life of Israel, um, another one. And Isaiah looks around and he sees so much sin and God sees it too. So much sin and failure and injustice and um, just Israel just not living anything like God intended for them to be or called them to be. And this is what God himself does, right? This is what Isaiah tells us that God that God does. God saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Isn't that fascinating? It's amazing. This is the image of God himself putting on his own armour and going into battle against his enemies. And so what does this mean, the context of the Old Testament in Isaiah? Well, it means that the, that the Jewish people, God's people, they came to understand that God himself was going to have to intervene in, 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 the, in the effects of sin and evil that they were struggling with and failing miserably in. God himself would intervene. He would intervene on behalf of of his people in this world. He would come and he would one day win a victory over evil and the effects of this sin-sick world. And of course, it's exactly what he did. We stand at the other side of that amazing event when Christ did come, when God did intervene in Christ and achieved a great victory. So God himself came in the person of Jesus. I apologise for the image of uh, the devil up there. It's, a, it's, it's actually... Um, there's nowhere in the Bible that talks about the devil looking like that at all. But anyway, that's what we've come up with. But God himself came uh, in the person of Jesus. And he gives us many images of his victory over Satan. Think about this. For instance, Jesus said that Satan is like a strong man who's been tied up and his house is being plundered. Okay, Jesus said to his disciples, uh, you may remember on one occasion, it's in uh, Luke chapter 10, he just sent them out to do great things for the kingdom. He said, all authority and power, my authority and power is given to you. Go and do these things. And so they, they went out and they came back and they're elated. 
they just go, wow, even, even the demons and, and, the, and the spirits and, and the devils, like they, they, they obeyed us, you know, we, we were healing people, we were casting these evil forces out and the disciples are just amazed and this is what Jesus says, he goes, yes, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. What's Jesus saying? Well, in other words, he's saying Jesus already knew of Satan's defeat. He knew it was coming. That's why he'd been sent. And it was soon to take place at the cross. Jesus says, I saw Satan. Yes, while you're out there in my power, living for the kingdom, I saw Satan and the images. He was falling like lightning from heaven, cast down. So his authority, his power has been broken. It's been smashed, defeated, nailed to the cross, put to death when Jesus died. Satan's power died. God struck a fatal blow to him against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the forces of evil. You may remember, um, because Paul references it earlier on in Ephesians, but he does so in Colossians chapter 2. He tells us in Colossians 2 that Christ disarmed the powers and the authorities and that he made them a public spectacle of them. He, He triumphed over them by the cross. And now Jesus sits on the throne, the right hand of God, and he's struck this fatal blow against Satan. He's defeated him and all evil powers that threaten us, that threaten God's good creation, done and dusted 2,000 years ago. Done, but not quite dusted. And this is important. You see, Satan is fatally wounded. Of that, there's no question. Our faith hinges on that but he's not yet fully destroyed he's fatally wounded but he's not yet fully destroyed his defeat's been accomplished jesus reigns supreme his victory's done over satan and those powers of evil but he still continues to send those flaming arrows our way name your sport all right think of your favorite sport whatever that might be but it's a bit like this have you ever seen a game between two teams or two opponents? Mainly teams. Opponents is a bit different. Think about team sport. Have you ever seen a game where one team has absolutely thrashed the other team? They thrash them in the first quarter and the game continues to play, right? There's no chance this losing team can possibly hope to win. The defeat's happened. They cannot win. It's actually impossible. Well, what do you think happens in those last remaining quarters of the game? What do we see happen? A whole lot of dirty tactics, don't we, sometimes? We still see the same level of intensity being played by that losing team, the team that's already lost. Sometimes fights break out, sometimes dirty tactics are deployed, even attempts to inflict a season-ending blow, a physical season-ending blow to a top player might happen too if they're really dirty. You see, there's no way that team can win. But, oh boy, can't they make a miserable existence in those remaining uh, few quarters or minutes in a game. They're going to go down kicking and screaming all the way. Well, Satan is just like that. He's been defeated, but he's still fighting in the dying minutes of the game. And so Paul says, gear up. He says, gear up, put on the armour that belongs to God and take our stand based securely and confidently on what God has already done for us uh, through Jesus in the good news about him, the gospel. Well, there's the list of armour. Do you see it there? This is what we're to, to, to put on to clothe ourselves with, the belt of truth, the truth that's been revealed to us 
in the gospel of Jesus. That, that's, that's the power for salvation. That's the power, that's the victory, and that's the truth. That's a reality, and that's the belt of truth that we're to gird ourselves with. Uh, we're to put on the breastplate of God's righteousness, uh, putting on the new self, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 24, the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Um, what about the shoes of readiness? Um, this, this readiness, get ready to, to tell people about what God has achieved, to bring the peace of God that's been achieved through the cross and the victorious uh, gospel message. Well, fourthly, there's the shield of faith. The field of, shield of faith is, is, simply means that we believe and we trust and we do so uh, so unswervingly. We hold on to all of God's promises in the middle of battle because we know the end has already happened. And then there's the helmet of salvation. The salvation that we've received from God, accepting the fact that God has rescued us from death, that we are no longer objects of his wrath, that we are no longer slaves and bonded to sin and having to live according to the flesh and according to the world and those powers and principalities. He's, he's saved us from all of that. He saved us from all the struggle. He has saved us. We're now in him. We wear the helmet of salvation. And lastly, he gives us the sword of the Spirit. That's what we fight with, which is the revealed Word of God. That's how we get the Gospel. We don't get the Gospel from our heads. We don't get it from our hearts. We get it because it's been revealed to us in history, real time and space, written down, faithfully preserved and continuing to be preached and proclaimed as we use God's Word. Well, together, we've been given these six things. Not that many, is there? But they're amazing because they come from God. And they've been forged in the fires of the gospel. And what he's given you and what he's given me is enough. That's all we need. And yet we have to take up each piece of this armour. We have to, even mentally, just for a moment, clothe ourselves at the start of every day as we put it on, as we go into our lives after we've woken up. We don't need to be fearful we certainly don't need to be overwhelmed or timid, but we can be confident in the fact that our Lord Jesus has won the battle, that he's defeated his and our enemy, and that he stands firmly with us in this last ditch effort from the enemy who's already a defeated foe. The armor's from God. It is his own armor. He's given it to us. we just got to get on, gear up with it, and stand firm. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as we close, he said, he said this, he goes, there's nothing that is more urgently important for all who claim the name of Christian than to grasp and to understand the teaching of this particular section of Scripture. There's nothing more important than understanding the nature of the battle that we're caught up in and understanding the resources that we have been given to respond. So, church, be strong. Stand firm. And once you've stood firm, you think, this isn't working, stand firm. And again, as Paul says three times, stand firm then, dressed in the full armour of God and in his mighty power. Well, why don't we stand together and do that quite physically for those who are able to. Let's stand as we pray and as we close. It's acknowledging God's presence with us the power that we live in, the power that has defeated evil. 
Almighty God, some of us this morning may not have realised the type of battle that we're in. We've perhaps overlooked it. Maybe we've been distracted by so many other things. Maybe we've been caught up in the confidence of our own lives, focused on our needs and our desires. But Father, this morning we acknowledge in response to your word that we are in a battle and it's a battle that we cannot win. We can't win this battle if we rely on our own strength. Yet our battle is against a defeated foe. And therefore we cannot lose this battle because Jesus has already won it. Forgive us as your people for the times that we rely on our own efforts and power. I pray, Father, that we would not only grasp the resources that you've given to us through the gospel, but that we will await the final, that as we await the final destruction of Satan, of his evil powers, Help us to use those resources that you've provided. May we clothe ourselves daily in the full armour that belongs to God. Father, as a church here, we want to bring before you um, prayers of those amongst us, the needs of those amongst us at this time. We ask for healing for those who are experiencing uh, either long-term illness or sickness, or those being, uh, receiving treatment for it. We pray for healing for those uh, broken hearts or strained relationships. We pray particularly for uh, the Colbys as they go through uh, medical procedures. We pray for uh, Ron Fussell as you, that you would continue to bring healing uh, to his knee. And we thank you for our brother John Harris and we pray for him too and that you would continue to be his strength and portion. And Father, we pray for all those who care uh, for their spouses, for their loved ones, um, for friends, for neighbours in challenging circumstances. And we want to pray for the upcoming team visit next weekend, um, the pastoral internship ministry team as they come and, and they partner with us and share in our gatherings. We thank you for their willingness to seek and to pursue ministry and mission in the power of your gospel. Uh, and so, Father, may we play a small part in, uh, in welcoming them and being ministered to by them and ministering uh, with them. Father, we ask that you'd grant your rest and your peace at this time of year. It's a time that's meant to be reminding us of, when, uh, of the celebration um, of the birth of your son when Jesus came. And so we acknowledge that we are weary, many of us. May those of us who are weary, may we find deep rest. May those who are despairing find hope. May those who are anxious find peace and contentment in all that you provide. May we understand what Christ has done to save us from sin, to save us from death and to bring us to you and to reconcile us to each other. And may each of us be alert. May we remain keen to share the faith that we have in Jesus with those who are yet to come to know and respond to him. And we pray all this in Jesus' strong, mighty and victorious name. Amen.